now to the reading of the Word of the Lord. We'll be reading this morning from 1 Kings 22. We'll read verses 1 to 40, and in these verses we'll come to the death of Ahab. We've been with Ahab for quite some time, for at least portions of seven chapters, which is about a third of our time so far in the book of Kings. And Ahab gets only a short bit less time than Solomon did. So the author is very concerned with Ahab, and today we see his demise for disobedience. Before we read from 1 Kings 22, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray for your light upon your word. We might learn from it and do what it instructs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 22, verses 1 to 40. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. The, the king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imla, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Chinana, had made iron horns and had declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. 
I saw the Lord sitting on His throne with all the host of heaven standing around Him on His right and on His left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then, son of, then Zedekiah, son of Chinana, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the Spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, you will find out on the day you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him, but Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot, com cried out. The chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random, hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, Wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army. Every man to his town, everyone to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at the pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built and inlaid with ivory and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Ahab rested with his fathers and Ahaziah his son succeeded him as king. You know, there's a a catchy little phrase or a catchy little jingle. I think it was made most famous by the old Steve Martin movie, Father of the Bride, and it says, every party needs a pooper, that's why we invited you. Super duper party pooper. Now there's a party going on here in this passage, and it's a war party. The king of Israel, he wants to hear the sermon. The king of Israel has... has has brought together a war party, and with this war party then, there's a prophet who's a super-duper party-pooper of a prophet. The king of Israel has had three years of peace. And he's had three years of peace. Ironically, he's had three years of peace because he was in an alliance with the king of Aram. And they had fought together in a war to hold the Assyrians at bay. But now that they've uh, accomplished that, 
Now he decides he's going to renew this old rivalry, and he calls for a war party, a gathering of all these people together, that he might go and retake a part of the promised land. But we should remember from a couple chapters ago that this is an unnecessary war. It's not an unnecessary war because Ahab is a bloodthirsty warmonger, though that may have been the case, but it's an unnecessary war because Ahab should have killed Ben-Hadad and the Aramean army two chapters ago when he had a chance. The Lord had miraculously delivered Ben-Hadad and the Aramean army into the hands of Ahab. And Ahab should have and could have killed Ben-Hadad right then and there and gotten rid of this Aramean threat for good. But instead of killing him as the Lord required in his law and had instructed him to do, he makes a treaty with him and he lets him go. And the prophet of the Lord, an unnamed prophet of the Lord, had said this is what the Lord says, you have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore it is your life for his life. So Ahab fights an unnecessary war, but to this war party, Ahab invites Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Israel and Judah were, also, were often at war together, but at this point they're at peace. And they had sealed their peace when Ahab gave his daughter Athaliah to the Judean king as a seal of their alliance. And we'll find in a few chapters that marrying the son of Ahab was a very bad idea for the king of Judah. But the King Ahab wants the, the Judean king's alliance, and so he invites him, and the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, says, I will go with one condition. We must consult with a prophet of the Lord first. And so Ahab brings in all these prophets. He brings in 400 prophets, and he says, all right, you want prophets, I'll give you 400 prophets. And the prophets are all saying the same thing. Yes, go up and attack the city. You will take it. The Lord will give it into your hands. And it's like he turns to Jehoshaphat and he says, look, you wanted a prophet. I gave you 400. And all 400 are saying exactly the same thing. You don't need anything more than that. Let's get going. And, and Jehoshaphat says, no, because he recognizes that these are not true prophets. These are state-sponsored propagandists. He wants a real prophet. These men are not beholden to the truth. They're beholden to the king. They don't tell the king what he needs to hear. They tell him what he wants to hear. They're more than happy to scratch his itching ears whenever he wants. There are plenty of preachers in our own time who are very similar. So Jehoshaphat desires and requires a real prophet. He says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord who can come? And Ahab says, yeah, there's one, and I hate him. Why does he hate him? Because he never says anything good about me, only bad things. And then the king of Judah says, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk like that. And so they call, they, they beckon for Micaiah to come. Micaiah is not a, a state-sponsored prophet, but he's beholden to the truth, not to a king. And so they send a messenger off for Micaiah and while he is coming, there's this great commotion. And we're not going to go back and read from the text, but I would recommend if you would like to follow along that you keep it open in front of you. The next scene comes from verses 10 to 14, and it's really quite a scene. You have these 
400 or so prophets, and they're all saying the same thing, and they're whipping each other up into this, this fervor. And then you have this, this one prophet especially, Zedekiah. He fashions these two iron horns like a bull's horns, and he goes back and forth, and he says, this is what you will do to the Arameans. You will trample them like a bull tramples down a man. And it's into this commotion that Micaiah the prophet comes. And as he's coming in and he begins to hear all this commotion, the messenger who was sent to get him says this, look, as one man the other prophets are predicting success for the king, let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. In other words, Micaiah, you have a reputation for being a party pooper of a prophet. Let's move past that. Get in line. It would be for your benefit if you said what the king wanted to hear. Now talk about pressure. This is a pressure cooker of a situation. You've got 400 prophets and they're all saying the same thing. And then you've got two kings dressed in their royal robes and one of those kings already hates his guts. And then he has this messenger telling him essentially, if you know what's good for you, you'll go along with the program. And if, if Micaiah weren't a prophet called by the Lord and given strength by the Spirit of the Lord, certainly he would have crumbled under the crushing weight of the pressure of the situation. Our, is oftentimes pressure for the people of God. It is true for us as individuals. It is true for us as a church. It is true for preachers and elders and deacons, and it is true for the church as it is spread throughout the world. I think of perhaps a couple examples from church and as an elder, and as in my case a teaching elder. You know, the funny thing is, nobody asks their pastor if they think it's a good idea to get engaged before they get engaged. But they expect the pastor is going to marry them when they get engaged. And usually that's a, a reasonable expectation. But sometimes, two people get engaged who ought not to get engaged. Because the Lord tells us very clearly that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so when Johnny Unbeliever comes and sweeps Jane Believer off her feet and she falls in love with him and she convinces herself that this is going to be a good thing, even though the word of the Lord says it's not going to be a good thing, they come and they want to have a church wedding because that's what you do. And so they ask the pastor. And then mom and dad over here, Jane's mom and dad, they've fallen in love with Johnny because, well, he's a nice boy. And don't, Pastor, don't blow the grandkids for me. We've been waiting a while for this. So what do you do? If you say no, there's always another church out there somewhere who's willing to take your members if you displease them. And you'll get phone calls to the office. Why do you hate people? Why are you such a curmudgeon? Why you got to rain on their parade? It's easier, isn't it, to just do it? Except, of course, for your conscience. And for what the Word of the Lord says. There are other pressures. Pressures to go along with cultural trends. Pressures to leave unquestioned assumptions of bygone eras. To sweep gross national sins under the rug. Pressures to 
preach on people's sins out there, but not people's sins in here. Pressures to leave certain books of the Bible unpreached. There's pressures on a church as a whole. The pressure to succumb to the worldview of the world around us. You know, we've had to change the bylaws of our, of our congregation more than once in the time I've been here. Each time we tighten who it is that we permit to use the sanctuary for weddings. And why do we tighten it so that we can't get sued? Every time, trying to protect ourselves because the pressure on the church gets a little bit heavier every year or every couple of years. There's pressure. There's pressure to look like other people. There's pressure on an individual level. There's pressure to, to sit and to share in the gossip at the table. There's pressure to lower yourself to the lowest common denominator, whatever that may be. There's always pressure for the people of God. But what does Micaiah say? He gives an answer to this messenger. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. This is a lonely situation. Desperately so. He's outnumbered at least 402 to 1. Micaiah will lose his freedom, but he will not violate his conscience, and he will not lose his right to the tree of life, which Jesus promises in Revelation 2 and 22. Then the interaction between these two antagonists carries us through the next section, verses 15 to 23. Micaiah is sarcastic with the king. Sarcasm is not always holy. But it can be holy at certain times, and here Micaiah used it, the other prophets use it from time to time, and Paul uses sarcasm rather effectively in the letter to the Galatians. Micaiah comes to Ahab and he essentially says, Oh yes, O king, my liege, go and do as your heart pleases. You will have success. Listen to all these objective prophets you've called. Certainly they are telling you the truth. And Ahab says, knock it off. We've been through this before, and they have been through this before. They seem to be well acquainted with each other. We've been through this before. Quit playing with the games. Just tell me what the Lord says. And Micaiah uses this sarcasm, and we can see that he uses the sarcasm for a reason. He expects that Ahab is not going to listen to him no matter what he says. Why bother telling him the truth if he's not going to listen anyways? He'll hear with his ears, but he's not going to understand or embrace it with his heart. The prophet Isaiah was, was told to speak to people like this. In Isaiah 6, verse 9, he was told to go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. You know, God keeps sending Micaiah to Ahab over and over and over, and Ahab listens with his ears, but he never obeys what he Hears. He refuses to reject the, he refuses to accept and instead rejects the word of the Lord. Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah both in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Matthew. There are people who will hear the word but fail to do it in every generation, whether it be Ahab's, Jesus, or our own. So then Micaiah gets serious. He pulls out a, a line from a different movie. He says, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. You're toast. Your army's going to fall apart. Everything is going to fall apart. And Ahab, you are going to die. 
Your war will lead to your death. And then Ahab says, look, I told you this guy doesn't like me. He's biased. He always tells me bad things. This is fake news. Let's go out there and get things done. And so that's what they do. He calls in the prophet, but they don't listen to what he says. But Micaiah has more to say. He says, I saw a vision. And it is a vision. It doesn't mean that this is a a literal thing he's seen with his eyes or that he was carried up into heaven, but he's seen a vision. And in this vision, he's in the throne room of God. And God says, "How how are we going to convince Ahab to go to his death? One prophet or one spirit says this, another says that, and finally the the winning spirit says, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of his false prophets. The Lord says, go and do what you have said. You will be successful. Does that make you squirm? This doesn't feel like the God that I'm really comfortable with. He's okay with a prophet going and lying or a spirit going and lying through prophets. This feels uncomfortable. I think there's a few things we should keep in mind. The first of which is that God tells Ahab the truth. Micaiah tells Ahab exactly what's going on. He tells him what is happening. He tells him the spiritual background to what's happening. Ahab has already acknowledged that Micaiah is a true prophet. He knows precisely what the truth is. He just doesn't want to listen to it. The second thing that we can note here is that God has every right to lead Ahab to his death. God has promised on three occasions already that Ahab is going to die for his sins. And if this is the means that God uses to bring about what he has promised in his word, he is free to do so. And that goes into the third point, which is that God is not like us, and that's okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable with God. If you are comfortable with an infinite, almighty, holy God in every respect, you do not know the real God. If God were God, you would not be able to entirely understand Him. And so that God is different from us is actually a good thing. We receive God as He is, not as we wish He were. Whenever we desire for a God who is cleaner or neater or tidier or fits into our categories better, And whenever we desire a God other than the one in the Scriptures, we desire an idol. And every idol is inferior to the God who is. Now what do we take away from this? I think it's a very simple lesson. Fear God. The proverb says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What did Ahab do? Ahab didn't fear the Lord. Ahab entertained the word of the Lord again and again and again, but he never obeyed the word of the Lord. Ahab got to the point where he would predictably hear and disregard what he had heard. You can come to that point too. You can come to the point where you come and you sit and you hear the word of the Lord week after week after week. And predictably, you will forget about it and not do what is said. You can hear the word of the Lord without embracing the wisdom of it. James speaks of the foolishness of this. He says in James 1, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
What did it benefit Ahab to bring Micaiah in? Nothing. He ended up dead just like he would have otherwise ended up dead. He heard, but he did not obey. And so it can be for us. We can hear without obeying, and that is of no benefit to us at all. As James says, faith without works is dead. Then we see that things heighten a little bit. The tension heightens a little bit as we move into the next section, starting in verse 24, running through verse 28. Zedekiah is a rather animated false prophet. He has these horns and he leads the troop of prophets. But then when he hears what Micaiah says, he walks up to him and he smacks him across the face. We can recognize a couple things here as well. The first of which is that somebody else was smacked across the face for telling the truth and his name was Jesus. Jesus stands in a long line of men who speak the truth and suffer for it. This tells us that Jesus is himself a true prophet as well. The second thing we can note from this is that Zedekiah is a logical person. Zedekiah recognizes that with this question that he asks, that either he is right or Micaiah is right. And he says, where did the Spirit of the Lord go when he left me to go to you? In other words, Zedekiah claims to be speaking for the same God, for the same Lord that Micaiah claims to be speaking. And they speak opposite messages. And so Zedekiah, not being a postmodern Western uh, person, he understands that what is true for you and what is true for me cannot be different and both be true at the same time. He embraces the law of non-contradiction. And so given that Micaiah says one thing, Zedekiah says something else, one of them must be wrong. Zedekiah says, Micaiah, you're the false prophet. God spoke through me. He didn't speak through you. And this puts us in a, a bit of a situation. What do we do when two people both claim to be speaking on behalf of God and they say two different things? Two opposite things. We run into this in our own day. Uh, the enemies of the truth are not always so obvious as we would like them to be. And I'm, I'm doing my doctoral project, which is why I'm out of the office this next week, on a, on a book. It's a book written by a man who claims to uh, accept and appreciate the, the authority and the inspiration of the Scriptures. But the entire thesis of the book is that the Christian church has misunderstood God's teaching on human sexuality for 2,000 years. And he would claim, based on the Scriptures, the exact opposite of what we would claim. How does one determine what's true? Well, you know what Micaiah does? Micaiah lets the Lord sort it out. He says his peace. He does exactly everything he needs to do. He speaks the truth. And then he trusts that in the end, God will vindicate the truth and prove the liars to be liars. And so Micaiah says his piece. He says, mark my words, all you people. If you return Ahab and you are not dead in your return, then the Lord has not spoken through me. It is good to say our peace, and then it is also good to let the Lord work it out in the end. We don't always need to be vindicated on our own timetable. So then we see as we move into the last large chunk, verses 29 to 38, that Ahab has a little bit of a, a crack in his courage. Ahab was full of bravado. 
Ah, I will go to war. And I got all these prophets. And he lets the prophet be struck in the face. He throws them off into prison with meager rations, bread and water. And he says, I'll return. But what does he do when he goes off into battle? But he wears the clothing of Joe Chariot Driver. And he says to his son-in-law, you, you go in your royal robes. You be the target. I'll look like just any old guy. So he seems to be trying to deceive. This is a move of deception into disguise. Now the Lord says the king is going to die, but perhaps I can trick the Lord and this prophet and these opposing soldiers by dressing not like a king. And it works, doesn't it? It works because the Arameans look and they say, that guy's the king. And they go after Jehoshaphat and they leave Ahab alone. The Arameans are fooled. They make a mistake in identifying who the king is. They don't know how to kill the king, even though they wanted to kill the king and they're instructed to kill the king. They don't know where the king is. The disguise works, except that as Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He might be able to deceive the Arameans, but he cannot deceive the Lord. Look how this gets set up. It's a random guy. There's no mention of his name, where he came from, anything about him. He's just a random archer in the Aramean army. Never heard from before, never heard from again. And then it's really a random shot. This is an archer who's just pulling back and firing. The, the Hebrew literally says he fired his bow, he shot his bow in ignorance or in innocence or in astonishment. He has no idea what he's shooting at. He's just flinging the arrow out there hoping that somehow it lodges itself in some Israelite soldier and renders them useless for the battle or even perhaps more preferably kills him. He's not aiming for a king. He has no idea what he's doing. It's just, it's just a, a sheer chance shot, except that it's not, is it? This is an arrow not guided by a king or by an archer. This is an arrow guided by the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord had said. Three times he'd predicted Ahab's death. He said, your life or his life. When Ahab murdered Naboth to steal his vineyard, he said, have you not murdered a man? In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. And he said to Ahab, I saw Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. The arrow was of the Lord. Ahab erred. The 400 prophets erred. Zedekiah erred. The Arameans erred. But the arrow of the Lord didn't air. And the word of the Lord took that random shot and caused that arrow to go at just the right velocity, at just the right time, at just the right angle to lodge itself in this little millimeter gap in the armor of the most heavily armored of all the troops on that battlefield that day in order that God might be proven true. Ahab erred. Zedekiah erred, the 400 prophets erred, the Arameans erred, but the word of the Lord is inerrant. And anybody who would like to take issue with that risks standing in Ahab's shoes or perhaps even in his chariot. Then we come to the end, verses 39 
and 40. So just a summary at the end of summary at the end of Ahab's life. In verse 39, on the surface, appears to be an acknowledgement that Ahab was uh, a splendid, magnificent king. He fortified cities. He strengthened Israel. He led a a military strengthening resurgence. And then he built this vast wealth and, and he built this palace with ivory inlaid all in through it. He had, a, he had an economic resurgence as well. Ahab's approval numbers in the United States of America would have been off the charts. This is a, a golden age for Israel. But what's the impression we get from the, from the text? Meh. Who cares? Seven chapters on the failures of Ahab. One verse on his success. All the one verse does is tell us that this doesn't matter. And where are his cities? They're buried under 50 feet of dust and dirt. And where's his palace? Stripped of all of its riches, burned to the ground. And where's his nation? His nation no longer exists. The point of verse 39 is that you might be a great, glorious, wonderful king in the eyes of the world, but only what's done for God matters. There's a short little poem that I quote at nearly every funeral that I have the privilege of preaching. And it goes simply like this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's the message of verse 39. Who cares about palaces or forts or fortresses or nations? Only what's done in obedience to the Word of God matters. Will you take the lesson from the life of Ahab that all the cars and homes, friends, accolades, matter nothing on the day when we stand before God to give an account of our lives. Will you take the lesson from the life of Ahab that every word proves true? You know, brothers, the Lord needs leaders in His church who believe His word down to the very last word. Take the warning from Ahab. Destruction comes on those who don't take the word of the Lord down to its very last word. But I want to offer a word of encouragement from this as well. We see time and time and time again throughout the entirety of the book of 1 Kings, and we're just one short section from the end of 1 Kings, we see time and time and time again that God's word always accomplishes its purposes. And that is true from beginning to end in the Scripture. In the garden, God promised death if they ate the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, and God's word came true. And it was true with Ahab and the divinely directed arrow of death that had been promised to him. But it is also true of salvation. Paul says, quoting the prophet Joel in Romans 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And just as surely as God kept his promises to Ahab for his death, so too God keeps his promises to us.
for eternal life. That if the word can be trusted to carry an arrow right to the exact right place at the exact right time, you can trust the word to carry you to eternal life if you will trust in Christ. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true for death. It's true for life. The word of the Lord is true. Genesis 3 is true. Ahab's death is true. But so is John 3. So is the gospel. As Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. God, your church, as you speak in your word, is built on the foundation of the prophet's and the apostles, the ones who spoke and who wrote your word. And we see with Ahab an example of what happens even to successful men, even to powerful men who would disregard your word and prefer to hear what they want to hear rather than what you would say to them. God forbid that we, that we, your people who have heard your word, should act likewise. But instead, we ask that we would take to heart the words of the apostle and the prophet that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Make us, Lord, not like Ahab who sinned, but like David who sinned and repented and was restored. Make us like Peter, who when he sinned, when he, when he feared that he came back and was restored. Make us faith-filled faithful hearers and doers of your perfect work. And give to us a courage and a conviction. Give us a courage and a conviction to trust in the perfection of your word. We pray that you would not allow us to fall into the patterns and follow the footsteps of wicked Ahab but instead that we would walk the narrow way that leads to life being followers of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.